going to be going through this fairly quickly. This is a lot of history. I'm not going to get into the scriptures tonight that talk about this. We already talked about the man of sin. We already talked about the false prophet. We did mention in passing the little horn. At a later point, I may go through the scriptures on the harlot and the queen, the mother that is represented by this whole system that the papacy sits atop, that the Roman curia sits atop. It's a word I don't think we've used yet. I talked to you about the pontiff and the C-S-E-E, seat of authority. So when they talk about the Roman see, the Roman seat of authority where the Pope sits, not his physical seat, but his domain. And then sometimes you have this word, the Roman curia, C-U-R-I-A, curia refers to their government. The government made up of the Pope and the other administrative, it'd be almost like we think of the executive branch of the United States government, the president, his cabinet, and the other governmental positions in the Vatican or the Roman curia. So we talked about last time some of the issues that led up to the Reformation, and we ended with the Reformation. And I told you I would talk to you when we talked about this again about the Counter-Reformation, which is the Catholic Church's response to the Reformation. They think of it as a revival. I doubt they'd like the term that they were countering the Reformation, other than the sense that they thought we are going through our own revival while these Protestants are trying to reform out there. What started leading up to that, especially in the 14 and 1500s before Martin Luther, was this what's called conciliarism. It was the idea that the Pope had too much power in one person, and so we need to divide the power up a little bit more and let the councils, the church council, when the bishops and so on come together, they should have equal authority or even higher than the Pope. So if the Pope gets out of hand, the church council can correct him. Not only did that not come about, As time went on, the Pope became even more entrenched in terms of his power. Part of why they decided to do that was because this event that is called the Great Western Schism. A schism is a division. Because of some political reasons, there were actually two popes at one time for quite a little while. Went on from 1378 to 1417, there were two different popes. One in Avignon, France, and one in Rome, Italy. And both of these popes were considered legitimate by the ones that followed them. And that caused a serious problem because if you believe the pope is essentially the one-man leader, then which one of them is the one-man leader? So this actually kind of stirred them into this idea that we need to have councils that can correct the popes. You don't have multiple popes making multiple decisions. At the Fifth Lateran Council, which was from about 1512 to 17... Part of its point was to reestablish the papacy so that these people that were trying to let the bishops have councils that could be equal to the popes, the Fifth Lateran Council closed the door on that. And what's really interesting about it is when the Fifth Lateran Council closed, you want to talk about a pressure point for Martin Luther. It ended with this idea that there will be no councils equal to the pope. The pope is a supreme ruler. That was seven months before Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on Wittenberg Church Castle door. So you can see some of the pressures that were going on. Maybe he was watching that, thinking, who knows how this Fifth Lateran Council would go. If they come out of this and the councils are able to correct some of the excesses of the Roman Curia and the papacy, I won't have to feel like i got to take a stand against this. But they didn't. They came out of that even stronger for the popes. There's several key things I'm going to talk about in a little bit more detail that were part of this Catholic counter-reformation. A counter-reformation means they were trying to counter the effects of the Protestant Reformation. One of the most important things that rose up at that time in the 1500s as a counter to this was the Jesuit order, of which the current Pope Francis is the first Jesuit to ever be elected Pope, at least that we know of. 
The Jesuit order was born in the mid-1500s. It was a very militant, extremely intellectual bunch of individuals whose primary purpose was to counter the Reformation and to give the Roman Catholic Church more power to restore its power. Another thing that followed in the 1500s was the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was probably one of the most important councils that the Catholic Church had in all of its history. There wasn't another council after the Council of Trent for 300 years. It was a very significant council to them. It reestablished and laid some groundwork for the way that they were going to respond to the Reformation. And then a couple other things that they used as tools against the Reformation was the Inquisition, as well as provoking holy wars. They would instigate holy wars. Kings that would obey the Catholic Church, they would use those kings and their troops to attack Protestant kings and Protestant troops. Those things were all going on as a counter to the Reformation. Okay, so the Jesuit order. I want to talk for a few minutes about that. I told you I'm going to give you just a bunch of history. So I've had a lot of questions on this. This isn't really what I call a Bible study. It's more like a history lesson, but it's important for the day we're living in, I think. It was in 1534 that Ignatius of Loyola, with six of his friends, bonded together to make this order that they called the Society of Jesus. He was a former soldier himself, so he was used to military order and structure. So when he started to develop this order, and you have to understand, when you come up with a new priestly or monastic order in the church, you're not legalized to operate until the church actually approves you. And they hadn't approved him yet, but they started to put together this order built on a very military-type structure. The leader of the order eventually became what was called a superior general. Some people call him later the Black Pope. Now, that's kind of a conspiracy theory. I'll throw in some conspiracy theories in the midst of all this. They would say the Jesuit leader has as much power as the Pope himself, but in the invisible, like we would think of an intelligence agency. Ignatius's plan of organization for the Jesuits was approved by Pope Paul III in 1540. So he established this in 1534. The plan that approved it to allow it to become a part of the church was in 1540. I wrote down a couple statements and quotes here that I thought would be significant that will give you some historical context. Ignatius wrote the Rules for Thinking with the Church. How's that for a title for a book? The Rules for Thinking with the Church. And rule number 13 of the Rules for Thinking with the Church really should give you a clue as to how blindly obedient they were. He said, essentially, if the church shall have defined anything to be black, which to our eyes appears to be white, we ought in like manner to pronounce it to be black. So whatever the church says is law, regardless of what our own eyes tell us, including what our eyes see in the Bible. That's a pretty strong statement to say as part of your rules, isn't it? That you're going to be so obedient to the church that it doesn't matter what your own eyes even tell you is truth. The Jesuits are extremely highly educated. They were from the beginning. In the Middle Ages, a lot of the Catholic priests were very simple. Many of them were uneducated, except in a very general way. But the Jesuits intended to be highly educated. They wanted to be able to influence the educational establishments. They wanted to be able to rise the positions in society politically, intellectually, where they could have a lot of influence to pull the mainstream back to the Catholic Church and away from the Reformation. Another thing they were strongly involved in is they were highly mission-oriented. They were constantly traveling, establishing mission bases, and they were constantly traveling later, establishing trade routes. One of the two cities that we bombed in World War II, Nagasaki, 
actually for a little period of time, for a handful of years, was a Jesuit colony. The Jesuits made a deal with a warlord who controlled the area of Nagasaki to buy Nagasaki. And they established colony there, part of which was so they could completely control the trade in and out of Japan through the Catholic Church. So the Protestant nations would have been starved of any trade with Japan. Japan wouldn't trade through any port but Nagasaki. That's an example of things they did. They were highly educated, they were highly mission-oriented, and they were very involved in financial and trade-type elements that gave them a lot of control, a lot of power. They established colleges. They're still, I don't know, there might be 28 Jesuit colleges in the United States right now, some of which are famous colleges. Isn't Xavier one? Oh, Xavier. Francis Xavier, by the way, was one of the six men that started the Jesuits with Ignatius of Loyola. Georgetown. The Jesuit schools that they started to build, which was one of the first things they did, within just a handful of years, they built quite a few. The Jesuit schools they started to build were actually one of the biggest things that allowed them to have influence because they were training the generation to come and they were so highly intellectually trained by the time of Ignatius's death, which was in 1556, the Jesuits were already operating 74 colleges on three continents in 16 years. See how fast they spread. Now today, I think there are probably Jesuit colleges or universities in 100 countries. But you don't realize that's what they are and how much influence they might have on the intelligentsia. The Julian calendar was the calendar that was in effect up to this time. We are living under the Gregorian calendar right now. It was named after Pope Gregory XIII. He is known for reforming that calendar and giving our present-day calendar where we have 365 and a quarter days. The one who actually created the Gregorian calendar wasn't Gregory. It was a man named Christopher Clavius who was a Jesuit priest, an astronomer. So it was actually a Jesuit who gave us the calendar we're using right now. He was the chief architect of that calendar. Gregory got the credit for it because that's what happens when you're the Pope. You get the credit, don't you? The Jesuits were heavily involved, as I said earlier, and even encouraged by the church in the control and development of trade. As they went to these different mission fields, they would develop trade routes, they'd develop centers of trade, and it generated a lot of revenue for the church, and it also cut off a lot of revenue from the Protestant nations. It was from 1580 to 1587 that they owned the city of Nagasaki and used it as a trade base. From around the 1500s, even up into the 1800s, Jesuit priests were in positions as confessors to kings and high royalty. Confessors? You know what a confessor is? Not really. If you're a Catholic and you feel like you want to go to confess, you'd go to a confessional, wouldn't you? And you go in there and you draw the curtain and on the other side of that little grill is a priest and you confess your sins to him and he absolves you as if any human man could absolve you of sin. He absolves you of your sins and tells you how many Hail Marys to do, sprinkle you some holy water or light some candles or give the church money, especially if it's a grievous sin. Let's give the church a check and go through the whole process. Kings and great powerful figures of royalty didn't want to have to go to confess to some common priest in a church somewhere who knows who might hear what they're saying. So kings and royal figures had their own confessors. They had a dedicated priest who they could confess to. Now you want to talk about a powerful position. The secrets of that king are being confessed to that individual. With the imaginary loyalty that, I won't tell anybody. Do you think that the Jesuits did not tell the system of the rest of the Jesuits if there was something that was important that they would need to know? 
Well, I imagine if they heard some confession from a king or a great royal person about something they could use against them, they probably used it. It's one of the things that caused them to have a tremendous amount of influence. They had begun to build up a lot of wealth during this period because of all the trade they were allowed to be a part of and controlling that. And then they were confessors to these royal figures, which gave them a tremendous amount of influence in the royal court. Think about this. This is the person that you're confessing your sins to. You're going to be pretty favorable toward them, wouldn't you think? They're going to be part of your inner circle, I would think. So that was a pretty significant position. By the mid-1700s, before our American Revolution, they already had gotten a reputation in Europe for political maneuvering and for greed, and it started to cause a lot of problems in some of the nations that wanted the Jesuits to be controlled. They didn't want the Jesuits to have free run to run around their countryside and influence their people. Political pressure started to come against the papacy to disband the Jesuits or to discipline them in some way. Pope Clement XIII was Pope from 1758 to 69. It was during his time that he actually agreed to consent to have a meeting about disbanding the Jesuits. The night before the meeting, he fell down dead. The conspiracy theorists say the current superior general of the Jesuits, who was one of their most famous, Lorenzo Ricci, commanded that he be poisoned and that that's why he fell down dead. The night before he was going to have a meeting to disband the Jesuits, that is a little timely, isn't it? The very night before you're about to have a meeting to get rid of that whole order of priests, you fall down dead. That was Clement XIII. Clement XIV followed him. And Clement XIV was under the same pressure from the politicians and the national leaders, the kings and so on, to disband the Jesuit order. And he finally did disband it in 1773, just three years before our Declaration of Independence. Many of the Jesuits were imprisoned. Their property was seized. Lorenzo Ricci was taken and imprisoned. He actually died in prison, their superior general. And strangely enough, a few months later, Clement XIV died. He was around 70 years of age. Some would say it's ridiculous to think he was poisoned, but the conspiracy theorists say Lorenzo Ricci sent the order to kill Clement XIII when he tried to disband them, and after the Clement XIV disbanded him, he sent another order and they poisoned him, according to the conspiracy theorists. It wasn't until 1814 that they were reinstated. There's a whole reason for that. Napoleon was running around the countryside during some of that time, and there was a very anti-establishment mindset going on with the French Revolution. There was a lot of anti-establishment mindset, which means people were against the royals and people were against the established church. But after Napoleon's era ended, they were reinstated in 1814, so the Jesuits are an official order again. A couple things that some conspiracy theorists think the Jesuits did, and I'm not going to have much more to say about them. One of them is the gunpowder plot of 1605. If you lived in England, you would know this real well because they have a holiday in England called Guy Fawkes Day. Without doubt, it was the Catholic Church, and it very likely was the Jesuits behind it because one of the highest-ranking Jesuits in the England at that time was said to have been aware of this plot and knew about it and knew it was going forward. They made a plot that on November the 5th of 1605, when the House of Parliament met, and when King James, the same King James, where we get our King James Bible, by the way, when King James and the House of Parliament were going to reconvene, that they were going to, underneath that area, put barrels of gunpowder and blow them all sky high. Mainly because of the House of Parliament were Protestant. So they get rid of all the Protestant leaders and the Protestant king, blow them all up. Guy Fox was the one who was going in and out of that area with 36 barrels of gunpowder. That they were going to blow all these poor souls up. Somebody sent an anonymous tip basically, that this was going on, and they searched and searched until they found it, and they caught Guy Fox. so Guy Fox Day is a day when there's a lot of explosions and things, that almost like our 4th of July. 
pretty common belief that the Jesuits were behind that, trying to destroy the forward momentum. And think about what King James is about to do. He was about to publish the King James Bible in just a couple of years. There's a lot of other things I've heard conspiracy theorists try to tie them to. I don't think you could prove any of these, but some of them think Napoleon's rise was because of the Jesuits influencing that. Some of them think that the Civil War was instituted by the Jesuits, our Civil War. There is a large contingent of people, though it's very shady facts behind this, that think Abraham Lincoln's assassination was least influenced to be carried out by the Jesuits with John Wilkes Booth. He was definitely influenced by Jesuits, so did they influence him to kill Lincoln or not? Jesuits are currently today the largest single religious order of priests and brothers in the entire Catholic Church. Throughout their history, there's been a real hot-cold relationship with the popes. The Jesuits, as part of their vow that they take, is a vow of absolute obedience to the pope. Sometimes they were almost like the arm of the pope, and any time he commanded them, they were carrying out his will. Other times they were working against him because they thought they knew better, and they were trying, I think, in their own minds to figure like they knew better how to bring success to the Catholic Church. It is strange when you think of an ultra-Orthodox group like this, but today the Jesuit order has been behind a lot of the most liberal movements in the Catholic Church. Now, this is important. Do you realize the Jesuits, in an academic sense, in the colleges and in the universities, have argued for homosexuality? They've argued pro-abortion. They've argued for women deacons, which are all very liberal things from a Catholic standpoint. They have argued for some of the very cultural things that the Catholic Church has stood so strongly against, and their argument is that they believe the Church can enter into this type of a compromise with culture and be able to influence and affect culture better if they compromise and give in on some of these issues. The previous two popes we had, Pope John Paul as well as Benedict, nominated Jesuits to pretty powerful positions in the Church. And now for the first time that we know of, Pope Francis, elected here just a few weeks ago, became the first pope who was actually also a Jesuit. So their Jesuits were a key part of the Counter-Reformation. The other thing is the Council of Trent. I'm going to go through that pretty quick. The Roman Catholic Church does consider the Council of Trent one of their most important councils. If there's anything you ought to know some history about in terms of what we call Babylon, what we call the harlot, the Roman Catholic Church in particular, you ought to know a little bit about the Council of Trent. It's a very important understanding why the Catholic Church believes they do today and where they're headed even today. It was started by Pope Paul III. He was pressured in part to do it by the Roman Emperor Charles V. This is in the 1500s, though, the Holy Roman Emperor. Pope Paul III was Pope from 1534 to 1549. You realize what time period we're talking about. It's right after the Reformation has begun to really get steam. Martin Luther, William Tyndall, and the others are beginning to stir the seeds of Reformation in the early to mid-1500s. The Pope that's just about 10 or 12 years after the time that Martin Luther made his statement at the Diet of Worms, Paul III, and they know they've got to do something about the Reformation. It's spreading. Protestantism is spreading. It's not just spreading among the common people. Rulers and powers of Europe are beginning to get behind the Reformation. Charles V's reason, part of it, was that the Catholic Church needed to correct some things. And I'm sure some of these people thought if the Catholic Church just corrects some of the abuses, all the Protestants will come home. If they just get rid of some of these clerical abuses, some of the issues with indulgences, which is one of the things that pushed Martin Luther's button, 
when they were going around selling these indulgences so they could really build up what is St. Peter's Basilica, they wanted to build it up and glorify it. And they were selling these indulgences to raise the money. Selling indulgences. In other words, if you had the power to get somebody out of a state of suffering and you're not going to do it unless they give you money, you know what the bad thing is? The very thing that stirred Martin Luther so much is going on all the time on television right now. I'm not talking about Catholic television either. I'm talking about Pentecostal television. Right. It's going on all the time in the Pentecostal television. Right. They're selling indulgences. They may not call them that. Send some money and I'll send you a prayer cloth. You send as much money as you have in your bank account and God will heal you, sister or brother. God will do it. And these poor elderly saints sending in their social security checks and everything else to these shysters to try to get under the blessing of God, under his covering or whatever, that's not how God works. He doesn't work through con men to cover people with his spirit. They're selling indulgences today just like they did back there. People are suffering. And if you had the power to heal somebody, why would you require them to make a payment for that? If you're a man of God, you might if you're not a man of God, and that's the point. The Council of Trent met in a small town called Trento in northern Italy. It was basically a commission of cardinals that initially was called to deal with some of the reforms they wanted to have inside the Catholic Church, problems with corrupt bishops, indulgences, and financial abuses they felt had been going on. That was the main reason. But what they accomplished out of that was actually to entrench themselves far deeper into taking a stand against Protestantism. It was the longest council in Roman Catholic Church history. It was done over three periods. They had to stop because of problems going on, a plague and political issues. But it went from 1545 to 47. And then it stopped for a couple years and went from 1551 to 52. And then it stopped and it started up again from 1562 to 63, the same council. I told you earlier, it was the last council the Catholic Church had for 300 years. And the council they had after that was a very significant one as well. It started on December 14th of 1545, just two months before Martin Luther's death in February of 1546. So right before Martin Luther died is when the Council of Trent began. There were all kinds of interesting stories around this council. A lot of violent altercations were going on. At one point, two bishops got in a fight about something in the middle of the sessions, and one of them ripped the beard of the other one while they were arguing. Godly men, right? There was a discussion about how the convents were to be treated, and the factions that disagreed on it were out in the streets beating each other. So, you know, this was a very peaceful and amicable and holy council they had, wasn't it? It had two principal purposes I started to mention earlier. One of them was to deal with administrative issues and church abuses, maybe to try to soften the issues of the Reformation. Look, we took care of all this. What you think is a problem with men that are stealing money or whatever, we took care of all that. You can come on back home to Mama's house now. The other thing was to condemn Protestantism. That's really what began to develop more than anything was a strong condemnation of Protestantism and a hardline stance on how the Catholic Church was going to approach things from then on. An invitation was sent to the Protestant leaders with a letter of safe passage to allow them to come. They were even allowed to speak at the Council of Trent. They weren't allowed to vote, though. Here's some of the declarations that were made at the Council of Trent. I've had several of you ask questions about some of these books in the Catholic Bible. In the Old Testament, in the Catholic Bible, you'll find books like Bell and the Dragon, First and Second Maccabees, Judith. This is the proper term for these books. It's called the Deuterocanonical books. 
Those books were in the Catholic Bible. Those books were not accepted by the Protestant reformers. Martin Luther did not put them in his edition. So they made a strong statement at the Council of Trent that they belong in the Old Testament, even though the Hebrew Bible, by the way, didn't include them as part of the Bible. That's why we don't. The Jews did not include them as inspired scripture, but the Catholics did, so they put them in there. Martin Luther's didn't include them. Well, how he included them was in a separate section, and it's the word we use for them today called the Apocrypha. They also made a pretty strong statement that is still very central to Catholicism today, and that is the Bible and the church tradition are of equal authority. That means whatever the church has come up with through history, if you're saying the Bible doesn't say that, it doesn't matter. Because the church has the same authority as the Bible has. If the church wants to establish some new thing that doesn't agree with the Bible, the church has equal authority. The reason they were so strong on that is because of the sola scriptura type statements being made by the reformers, and that is, let's go back to the scripture. You all have come up with all these things, and let's go back to the scripture. They said, no, you can't go back to the scripture. The church is equal to the scripture. Whatever we've come up with, celibacy for priests or whatever, we're equal in authority to the scripture itself, our traditions. Added to that, one of the other statements they made essentially says that the church is the only true interpreter of scripture. The ultimate interpreter, I think, is maybe closer to how they word it. Another thing they said is that salvation is through faith and the works of the ritual sacraments of the church. In response to Martin Luther saying that salvation is through faith alone a number of things that the reformers were against. I wish they would have gone against more than this because there's plenty of false doctrines the reformers took with them out of the Catholic Church. But some of the things the reformers took a stand against was purgatory. The Catholic Church reaffirmed that. They took a stand against indulgences. The Catholic Church reaffirmed that, but they did make a rule you can't sell them anymore. The reformers took a stand against the invocation of the saints. Do you know what that is? That's when you pray to saints to help you. Pray to some saint that's up in heaven that's a saint for the patron saint of travelers or whatever. You're going to pray to them to protect you while you're on the road. Michael. Michael. So you're going to pray to Michael to help you on the road. You're going to pray to these different patron saints. They reaffirmed that. Maybe you don't find it in the Bible. That's fine. Because church tradition is equal to the Bible. See, it all ties back into itself. And then the veneration of relics. Someone would say they got a nail that was from the cross. And it's been saved in the Vatican for 1,500 years. We've had it in the Vatican. It's venerated. It's a holy thing. They reaffirmed that. They also reaffirmed the worship. They wouldn't word it quite this way, but what I call Mariolatry. They reaffirmed the worship of Mary. Protestants didn't do that, so they said Mary is to be worshipped. I wrote down part of the creedal oath. You have to take to accept some of these statements as well as the Tridentine statements. Part of it says this, I recognize the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Roman Church as the mother and mistress of all churches. And I vow and swear true obedience to the Roman pontiff and successor of blessed Peter, the chief of the apostles and representative of Jesus Christ. That's part of your oath you'd have to take. Okay, now let's run forward in time. 1700s to the 1800s. After the fall of the Western Roman Empire, Italy gradually developed into what you'd probably call a system of city-states. After the Roman Empire itself fell, a lot of these nations that were held together as part of the empire started to fall into their own tribal areas and warlords would rise up. Italy fell into a number of city-states. And during that time is when the papacy ruled over their papal states. They had a part of Italy and they had other parts of nations around the world they considered their own. We talked about it last time. One of the events that our neighbors through the trees are big proponents of is dating the 1260 days. It is also what a lot of brethren among us have believed from 538 
AD to 1798 is the 1260 days that the papacy was at its great power. They ended in 1798 because in 1798, Napoleon Bonaparte seized Rome and basically imprisoned the Pope. So they say that was where the end of the Pope's power came. Well, I really think the end of the Pope's power began to come in the 1500s with the Reformation. Even with some of the things you're going to see that they did in the Counter-Reformation, where they had the Jesuit order and they had the Council of Trent making their statements and these other things, even with all these things going on, the power of the Roman Church after the Reformation continued to decline. That doesn't mean every area of their power has declined. In some areas, they've got more power. I'd imagine today they probably have more money and own more property than they've ever owned. Most people don't know it. The Roman Catholic Church has property all over the world. It just isn't always classified as property of the Catholic Church. It's owned by shell companies. It's owned by rental companies. It's owned by all kinds of companies, but the final legal owner of all those companies that own all these properties is the Catholic Church. I just saw a news article here lately put out, might have been by a British newspaper, where they were saying how surprised they were to find that all up and down these British streets, when they researched who owns these different apartments and properties, it was the Catholic Church. But in terms of their power in a religious way, it has declined in some ways, since they took that wound by the sword of the word of God and the rising of the reformers. 1798, the papal states as a whole were taken by the French forces of Napoleon, and the area was declared a Roman Republic. Pope Pius VI died in exile in Valencia, France in 1799, and people make these years very significant because it looks like the papacy has been defeated. The Roman Catholic center of power has been taken. But that's not the only time that happened in history. The papal states were restored in June 1800, just two years later, and Pope Pius VII returned, but the French again invaded in 1808 and took them. Finally, with the fall of the Napoleonic system in 1814, when the Jesuits were restored, the Papal States were also restored. During the 1800s, the Kingdom of Italy was trying to reunify, meaning they were trying to take all these pieces and put it into one nation they could say is Italy. There wasn't a nation that you think of as Italy today at that time. It was pieces of city-states. And the papacy, if you look at a map, actually owned the whole middle stretch. You know how Italy looks like a boot? Right around knee level, there's a stretch that goes across and goes like this. That was the Papal States at that time. They owned that whole stretch of land, included Rome on one side, up the coast on the other side. And part of the reunification was the Kingdom of Italy wanted to be one unified kingdom. And I think the popes felt like they'd have to come in under the authority of Italy, which they'd have to be under that power, so they refused to do it. And eventually, the Kingdom of Italy invaded the Papal States. First, they took Romagna, which was the eastern portion. And then later, they took Latium, which is the area where Rome was at. And when they finally took Latium, it was in September of 1870. That's going to be significant in a moment. Sixty years from September of 1870 to 1929, they lived in this state that was called the Roman Question. What are we going to do with the popes? What are we going to do with the church sitting here? And the popes called themselves prisoners in the Vatican. They made themselves prisoners. They sat in there, wouldn't come out. They wouldn't have anything to do with the Italian. They just ran things from within there as if they were their own government. Okay, let's leap forward. We're in the mid-1800s now, and Pope Pius IX was the pope from 1846 to 1878. November the 9th, 1846, Pius released an encyclical. An encyclical is a letter that's intended to circle around the churches. 
In this letter, he basically stated that he was infallible in regard to any issue he spoke on in regard to faith and morals. And also in that letter, a little later, he referred to Mary as being immaculate in her conception. December 8th of 1854, the Immaculate Conception of Mary became an official dogma of the church. Do you know what the Immaculate Conception is? It sounds like when she conceived, what she conceived was immaculate. Immaculate meaning perfect. That Jesus was perfect in the womb of Mary, but that's not what it means. One of the reasons the Catholics pray to her the way they do is they believe Mary, when she was conceived, was perfect. And she never had sin. So Jesus wasn't the first perfect overcomer, was he? His mother was. Because they believe she was conceived in perfection. The Immaculate Conception. The First Vatican Council convened on December the 8th, 1969. It lasted through October 20th, 1870. That's why I told you, remember, September. Right in the middle of the Vatican Council, this shows you how turbulent these times were. While they're making some extremely big statements about how powerful they are, in September of 1870, the Roman kingdom came in and took their property. Right while they're declaring some pretty big statements about themselves. Here are some of the statements from this council. This is going to sound familiar to you because when we talked about this history one time before, I told you there are two big keys, are the primacy of Peter and the succession. If anyone therefore shall say that the blessed Peter the apostle was not appointed the prince of all the apostles and the visible head of the church militant, or that the same directly and immediately received from the same our Lord Jesus Christ a primacy of honor only and not of true and proper jurisdiction, let him be anathema. Anathema is when you are literally excommunicated from the church, cut off from God. If then any should deny that it's by the institution of Christ the Lord or by divine right that blessed Peter should have a perpetual, that means it never ends, line of successors and the primacy over the universal church, or that the Roman pontiff is the successor of blessed Peter in this primacy, let him be anathema. Anyone dares to say Peter doesn't have an unbroken lineage and that the Roman pope is that person? You're excommunicated. You're anathema. Another statement. All the faithful of Christ must believe that the holy apostolic see and the Roman pontiff possesses the primacy over the whole world. And, speaking of the pope, he is the supreme judge of the faithful. None may reopen the judgment of the apostolic see. That's a pretty big statement. If the Pope has made a judgment, you're going to see where this is going to go in the next statement. Nobody can open the case again. No other counsel and no other person can ever override his judgment. We're leading up to the coup de grace, the climax of this. This see of Holy Peter remains ever free from all blemish of error. The Pope is ever free from all blemish of error, which is one of the most ludicrous statements in the world when you look at all the different views and ideas the Pope's had through history. And then finally, this is the key statement that is what we call papal infallibility. The declaration that the Pope is infallible. When he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church, he possesses by the divine assistance promised to him in Blessed Peter that infallibility which the divine Redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith or morals. So anything the Pope speaks in terms of doctrine or morals is infallible. It's like God speaking it. It can't be changed and will never be changed. When do they say he's speaking ex cathedra? If he's having a conversation with you on the side and says, you know, I think Ezekiel 37 means... That's not speaking ex-cathedra. Right. If he's right. speaking out to the church and he says, this is my declaration, 
The Lord has revealed it to me. Homosexual marriage is acceptable. He's infallible. Nobody can question that. No counsel and no other person, according to their doctrine. So that has to do with morals? Morals and faith, which covers almost everything when it comes to this. Faith is the doctrine. Morals is your practices, your orthodoxy and your orthopraxy. 535 prelates voted on this. You'd think it would have been a pretty split vote, wouldn't you? 535 voted, 533 approved papal infallibility. There was 106 others that left, and some of them wrote saying they left because they didn't want to have to cast a negative vote. You know, of course you don't want to do that. Get you in trouble later when he's infallible and he's coming after you. 106 of them left, but that still wouldn't have even begun to stop the process. 533 voted. And this should show you what this kind of thing developed. The next pope made this statement, Pope Leo XIII. We hold upon this earth, this is him talking about himself in his office, the place of God Almighty. Mm-hmm. We, the papacy, hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. How's that for a big statement? The papacy from the 1800s, of course, with this being shut in the way they were, not having the papal states, not having the type of power and income they were used to, started to fall into a financial distress. So that by the time between World War I and World War II, the Vatican was in serious financial distress. Some stories I've heard say that some of the precious works of art and things that were stored there were beginning to mildew, that there were rats in the walls. I heard a story, for example, they put out the Holy Communion wafer and that they were horrified because rats were getting to it. And you know, that is, according to them, the literal blood and body of Jesus. The strange thing is, one of the popes at this time's last name was actually Rati. So there's rats in the walls. The financial situation was very bad. They didn't have the money to even hire enough people to keep the Vatican clean and orderly. As far as the condition it was in, they couldn't keep it up. And in the middle of all this, here they were from 1870 when they were basically shut off from any other worldly power in terms of having their papal states. And they just have these buildings where they're living. They went all the way into the 1900s. And in 1929, who was the true de facto leader of Italy? Anybody know? 1929? King Emmanuel was the ruler, but who was really pulling the strings? Mussolini. Mussolini. I knew Sister Helen's a historian back there. Benito Mussolini. Mussolini made a deal with the Vatican. If this is the true church of God, is that who you want giving your property? It goes all the way back to Constantine. It goes back to some of these other ones that I talked to you about. Why would you want these emperors full of corruption, evil, murderous, and everything else? They're the ones who gave you your church. They're the ones who gave you the money to run. You can see that they were adulterated with the world. That in itself is proof. Some people call it the donation of Mussolini, like the donation of Pepin or the donation of Constantine. But it's actually called the Lateran Treaty or the Lateran Pacts in 1929. There was a negotiation that went back and forth, and you can see why this would be. The vast majority of Italy was Catholic. Mussolini wanted somebody to back him in his bid for power that he was about to play and some of the moves he was going to make, especially in World War II. And thus he needed the Catholic Church, if nothing else, to be a rubber stamp to say they were behind him so he wouldn't have division in the ranks. And so he made this deal with the Vatican. They started negotiating, I think, in 1926 between Italy and what they later would call Vatican City. It's an actual nation today. They were signed for King Victor Emmanuel III of Italy by Benito Mussolini. 
who at that time was called the prime minister and head of government, and they were signed for Pope Pius XI by Pietro Gaspari, who was a cardinal and the secretary of state for the Vatican, signed on February 11, 1929, in the Lateran Palace, which is why they're called the Lateran Pact, the Lateran Treaty. The Pope was pledged to perpetual neutrality in international relations and to abstention from mediation in a controversy unless specifically requested by all parties. In other words, the Pope could not get involved in international relations with Italy and their neighbors, and he could not try to moderate anything. The main bulk of what they received out of this, there's a lot of elements to it. I'm only going to mention two things. One of them was they received what is now called Vatican City, a place in the middle of Rome that is its own sovereign state given to them by Mussolini in exchange for them backing him. Now, they might not want to word it that way, but that's what it was. He also gave them what amounts to, in U.S. dollars, $92 million as reparations for the fact that Italy had taken the papal states, which helped them to get on their feet. And some conspiracy theorists would probably say also helped them to build up this massive amount of wealth they have today. They started in 29 with $92 million, which was a massive amount of money in 1929. You realize everything's about 10 times expensive? That'd be like someone giving you almost a billion dollars. Then the Second Vatican Council, one of the last things we'll talk about, was convened under Pope John XXIII in 1962, closed under Pope Paul VI in December of 1965. There were four purposes of that council, and I think it tells you a whole lot about where the Catholic Church is at today. One of them was to more fully define the nature of the bishops. One was to renew the church, to bring revival. Notice this, to restore unity among all Christians, including seeking pardon for Catholic contributions to separation and to start a dialogue with the contemporary world. Which means the Second Vatican Council in the 60s was for the purpose of trying to reach out to all these separated brethren, if you will. They even call them that. One of the more controversial documents that they had was related to the Jews, and it was an attempt to try to reach out to the Jews, and it basically made this statement that the Jews were not responsible for Christ's death back in that day, and you can't hold them responsible for Christ's death today, and that they are not for persecution of the Jews or any other people, which, of course, they had done for hundreds of years, and they essentially were apologizing for those kind of actions. What they were trying to do and what they are trying to do is trying to bring some kind of an ecumenical unity. But I really felt the need that you had some idea of some of these events because we're in a day right now, I've talked to I don't know how many people lately ask me questions about the Catholic Church because they know I'm a minister. I was used to hear how bad the Catholic Church was. Now they were this harlot. They were going to do this, that, and the other. He goes, look at them now. They're not doing nothing. They don't have any power. They're a mess. Look at all the weakness they've had, all these accusations that have come against them in the 20th century. The accusations of sexual impropriety that they've had in terms of child abuse. The Vatican stated, I think, from 2004 to 2011, they'd investigated 3,000 priests. That sounds like a big number, but there's 400,000 plus priests in the world, you know. They said they investigated 3,000, but when they did the survey in the United States, there were 4,300 priests just in the United States that are under investigation. It looks like it has undermined the power and the ability of that church. But I don't believe it has. I don't think that their goals have changed one bit. I think they have gotten to be masterful at playing politics. 
Their version of playing politics in the Middle Ages was brute force and threat. Threaten someone with damnation, threaten them with excommunication, threaten them with the fires of hell. Now they play the invisible political game. And they are now playing over to the Jews. They're playing over to the Muslims, trying to reach out to them. They've even made outreach to many of the Protestant churches, and you're seeing more and more Protestant churches willing to have some degree of fellowship with the Catholic Church. The Anglican Church is doing this. At the end of the Second Vatican Council, which I'm not going to say anything more about, the Orthodox Patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church, Athenagoras, and Pope Paul issued a statement of joint regret that they had taken some of the actions that they had that led to the Great Schism that split the Greek Orthodox and Catholic Church. To even make that statement is unbelievable. To think they would have made a statement that they're both sorry that they split their churches. It tells you that there is hope for there to be an ecumenical indrawing. That's what their goal is. Mind you, they would not agree with this. But you just study them. Today, in a day where they're trying to bring everyone under mama's covering, you can believe anything you want. You can be a Muslim. You can be a Buddhist. It makes no difference as long as you let us be the elder brother in all this. That's the goal. You can believe what you want. We have used this scripture in time gone by. I've got two views on it. I'm not going to get into it tonight. Where it says, seven women shall take hold of one man. Just let us wear our own apparel. Let us eat our own bread. As long as we can be called by your name to take away our reproach. Now, there's two ways you can interpret that. But the way it's traditionally been interpreted among us is that is talking about this system. That this system is that papal system. And all these churches just want to take hold of him to take away their reproach. Let's let there be one oversight. Let's let there be one power. It'll bring peace, won't it? If you've got one oversight, one person that will be the mediator for everyone else, we won't have any of these wars of religion anymore. Do you realize if there was one goal that the progressives in this world want more than anything else, you want to know what it is? More than homosexual marriage. Do you know what the progressive would like more than anything else, whether they were willing to say this audibly or not? To remove religion from the face of the earth. Religion is the thing that keeps the progressive movement from succeeding. It's why they hate the Christian church. It's why they despise this precious book. It's because this is like a block that holds them from moving forward. And a progressive has to progress. They've got to move forward. They've got to bring finally this utopian society where everything is just perfect, which can't be done without God. Man's never done it. Every time man's created any system, it has become a corrupted and a diabolical thing. Some of you were in the era when the Beatles invaded the United States. John Lennon wrote this song that's one of his most famous called Imagine, that in there he says, Imagine no God. No heaven, no hell, no religion. That is a dream to a man like John Lennon. A dream that there could be a world without God. Now to us, that's terrifying. It's a world without any order. What most of the men of this day want is a world without any rules. A world without any constraints. A world without any boundaries. And if you can get God out of the world and get the church out of the world, and now there's no religion then there's no reason for there to be any boundaries to anything you choose. It is a complete free-for-all, morally speaking. I don't think it's just a desire for moral corruption, though, that drives that. I really think, unfortunately, this is the most dangerous type of ideologue, you realize. The most dangerous ideologue is someone that really believes their ideology. The type of people that flew those planes into the World Trade Center believe their ideology. 
You don't fly into there if you don't think you're getting a reward for it. They were true ideologues. Unfortunately, some of the leaders in our nation are not ideologues at all. They're greedy and materialistic, and they're using ideology to give themselves more power. But there are sprinkled in among them people that there is a greater goal for them than just power and influence and material wealth. They are an ideologue. And they truly believe if they can remove the restraints of Christianity, they can establish something that will work and be peaceful and there'll be no wars. And they don't understand what moral restraints accomplish. What they're trying to do is get rid of any restraints so there will no longer be these tensions. Do you know as long as there is truth, there will be tension in a world of falsehood? In a world of falsehood, as long as there is any truth, there will be tension. Because truth creates tension. When everything around it is false, truth presses against that falsehood. Truth is trying to expand and to grow and to overcome falsehood. And you're not going to remove this because you need it out of your way to build your utopian society. This is the truth. And here we stand in this terrible, wicked day that we're in right now. And we have ideologues rising up. It'd be bad enough if they were just greedy, materialistic individuals using religion or using politics to get power. There's plenty of those. But there are true ideologues rising up. And their goal is to remove the Christian religion from the face of this earth. And they are convinced that will be a wonderful thing when they do it. That's where we're at, saints. I want you to think about this scripture. Do you realize it says that the ten kings are going to give their power to the beast? They're going to submit themselves to the system the beast is bringing into place. But it says that after they're loose from that, they're going to turn on that harlot and they're going to attack the harlot. There is a beastly system rising in this world right now, and it'll use religion. It doesn't mind using religion. It'll use religion to bring about its ends. But when it's done, it'll destroy that religious system to establish itself. That harlot thinks she can sit on the back of the beast and direct it and guide it, but that beast is going to turn on her, and it will devour her. It'll be part of the judgment that happens. We're in a day right now where the last thing we can afford to do is forget the lessons of history. I started saying that when we talked about these issues of the false prophet, and it's been a lot of history lessons, a lot of dates I've thrown at you. But we need to know some of these things. We need to know what's gone before us so we know what's coming ahead of us. Because whatever has gone before will determine what's coming ahead. So here we stand. Like Martin Luther said, and we can do no other. Our conscience has to be captive to the word of God. In a world that is loosing the restraints. Second Psalm says, The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. That's exactly what they're trying to do right now, saints. They're trying to break the bands and cast away the cords of moral restraint in the society. I don't know what the result is going to be of this series of judgments that's going on in the Supreme Court right now. But every step we have taken in those directions, what we did in 1973 with Roe versus Wade, and what we're preparing to do right now, if we're not careful, is going to break the cords and the restraints. And I'll tell you, it's a dangerous thing on a wild sea to not have an anchor. You realize this great nation is cutting the cords of its anchor? We cut the last cord, and that great anchor, which is Jesus Christ our Lord, is going to be severed from this nation. 
And what a horrible and a terrifying place this will be to be when we cut the last cords of God's moral restraints from around this country that was once great. So you need to know where we're at. It's not exactly a pleasant subject, is it? We are in a day where it really requires us to be aware of where we're at, what's going on, what's happening. We just have dealt with a pretty dark subject, the rise of the man of sin, the fact that even with the deadly blow he received and that system received, it's still alive. And it's so much more subtle today, so much more manipulative today, so much more intelligent in its methods and ecumenical elements today. And here we are talking about that, and that's not a good place to close, is it? You realize on Good Friday, they weren't in very good spirits. Good Friday was a pretty dark day. You might call it Good Friday, but it wasn't very good for them. It wasn't very good for those folks. Good Friday, their master was in the ground. The one who was the treasure absconded with the money and sold out. One of the right-hand men turns on his leader and denies him three times. You've got women weeping while this man is going to his death. He's been brought to trial and five trials and executed without any guilt even being laid at his feet. And now he's laying in the grave. And the hope of the world at that moment for three days and three nights was lying dead in the grave, saints. The hope of all the world was dead. He poured out his soul unto death, Isaiah 53 says. He was body and soul dead three days and three nights. But sometime in the dark hours between nightfall on Saturday and dawn on Sunday, the one that was dead became alive again, praise his holy name. And our hope that we're lying on right here tonight with all the darkness of some of these subjects we're handling, the dawn is on its way, saints. These are all precursors to the dawn. And we are living in that little trench of time like they were where it looks like the hope of the world is dead. Everything's coming in around us. The pressures of the world are coming in around us. And here we stand, but the hope of the world is going to come again. Praise the God of heaven. He came that time, he rose, and he's coming back again so some other people can rise. So thank God.